0: Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at
1: www.indigopodcast.com. Today's episode, we have Matt Crane and Kelsey Medeiros, and we're going to talk about pandemic leadership. That's right. It's going to be awesome.
0: (laughs) It's going to be a great topic. Absolutely.
1: All right. And we're going to talk about three things today. First, well, with three things, three ways to think about leadership, profile of three world leaders during COVID and implications for more than three people
0: uh, and organizations. (laughs) We got the
1: three thing going today.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And before I introduce them, just so our listeners know that we actually do have Kelsey Medeiros and Matt Crane in the podcast here today. Uh, say hi. Hey. Hey, how are you? Awesome. We got them. All right. So I did mess with their bios a little bit just to make them shorter. And there may be some cheekiness in there. That's all me, not them. They are both highly professional people. (laughs) So, to start off, Kelsey Medeiros is an assistant professor of management at the University of Nebraska, Omaha, where she researches workplace troublemakers, unethical numbskulls, sexual harassment jackwagons, and even good rabble-rousers in organizations. She is the co-founder of an ethics consulting firm, Ethics Advantage, and she has consulted with companies on issues related to human capital, including human performance, creativity, training, and assessment. Kelsey also authored the book, Ethics Training for Managers, Best Practices and Techniques, which will be released in fall 2020. Looking forward to that. She earned her PhD in industrial and organizational psychology from the University of Oklahoma. Bimmer. So that's Kelsey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Matt Crane is an assistant professor of management at the University at Albany School of Business. His research, which appears in journals such as American Psychologists, Organizational Research Methods and Personality and Individual Differences focuses on leadership, sense-making, and applications of organizational science to national security and public policy research. He earned his PhD in industrial organizational psychology from Pennsylvania State University. But prior to joining academia, he worked as a management consultant in the human capital consulting practice of Price Waterhouse Coopers in New York City. Woo! So... Matt and Kelsey, this is your formal welcome to the Indigo Podcast. Yes. Woo-hoo, thank thanks you. Thanks much. Thanks for having us. <laughs>
2: thanks, yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, Man, bet. we get
0: such
1: smart guests on this show.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. It's so great. So, uh, you know, the, the impetus for this, I'll just start with this. You know, they uh, recently published this great paper, and we'll put a link to this in the show notes, and it's in uh, American Psychologist, on uh, this idea of different, leadership um, perspectives or styles that people are taking or world leaders have taken during COVID. And so we're going to be talking about that as we go through today's episode. Interested leaders or uh, people out there, leaders and non-leaders, should check out that article and read it in its entirety because it's good. All right, so why don't we start with this first idea, this first kind of theme, which is you know, there's these three ways to think about leadership, you know, and what I oftentimes uh, tell my students the way I think about it is there's tons of lenses through which we can look at leadership. uh, And these three ways that we're going to talk about today are really helpful within this kind of context of uh, national leadership and so forth during COVID. So I'll leave it there. Let our experts here, Kelsey and Matt, uh, tell us a little bit about these three different ways to think about leadership.
3: Yeah, thanks very much. Um, So I think the the place to start uh, is that you know a lot of the way that academics, but particularly people in the you know non-academic public outside of leadership research think about leadership and have historically focuses on what leadership is or what leaders are, right? So a very characteristics or trait based perspective, and a lot of leadership research has tried to push away from that and talk about situations or uh, behaviors or relationships, and those have been really good. You know, steps forward, but that hasn't translated too much into how the kind of average person still thinks about leadership or how we really approach uh, evaluating leaders out in the real world. So when you think about you know, our world leaders um, in particular, we still tend to think about those folks based on their kind of surface level characteristics. But one of the things that's been highlighted a lot, Kelsey and I thought, through COVID um, is the kind of need to understand how leaders think, which is very poorly uh, understood and not really considered very much in both academic circles and public circles. Um, and so this there's one kind of overarching theoretical paradigm that thinks about how leaders make sense of problems and why that's important, and that's the uh, charismatic, ideological, pragmatic, CIP uh, theory of leadership. And so that a- approach to thinking about leadership focuses not on, you know, how leaders look or the traits that they have, or even so much on their behavior's in particular, it starts at how they make sense of the world, right? And it argues that there are these distinct patterns of sense-making in how leaders interpret problems, um, and that the interpretation of those problems directly predicts how they're going to respond to problems. Um, And we saw this kind of really coming to fruition in COVID, where we have all of these world leaders all across uh, the globe facing this universal problem. Everyone's addressing the same thing, and that's very unique. I mean, we usually don't, you get a chance to see that's people. a
1: scientist's dream, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Cause you get, you, they're all literally lined up doing the same stuff.
2: Totally a hundred percent.
3: Exactly. Exactly. So it's, it was a real kind of, uh, I think proving ground from our perspective of the core concepts of this theory is like, okay, if all of these people have different potential approaches to viewing the world, but they fall into these buckets, which of these buckets looks like it might be the most effective in this case. And how do we see, uh, potential differences in outcomes when, uh, you know, people have different approaches or take a different style to making sense of the world. And so that's that's where we started.
0: Outstanding. So I think we should break these down a little bit and maybe talk about these different um, pieces of this leadership model, the charismatic, ideological, and pragmatic components. So uh, Kelsey, you want to take one of those absolutely or tell us a little bit more about it um so
2: the the theory was originated by mike mumford who's at the university of oklahoma still um and he argued that you could conceptualize these leaders across nine different dimensions so they were fundamentally different in these nine different ways so um, some of the key ones are the the time frame with which they view the problem. So you've got charismatic leaders who have a really future orientation and they're talking about, this is where we're going, always looking ahead. Uh, whereas ideological leaders are looking more toward the past. So when we hear things about people want to return to um, a, a previous state, or, or the way the country used to be, uh, that's a very ideological approach. Um, and then you've got pragmatic who are really focused on the present. They're much more problem-solving uh, focused. So that's one. We also can look at um, the who they're targeting. So who are their followers? Charismatic leaders tend to target the masses. You've got uh, ideological leaders who really focus on a key core group. And then pragmatic leaders who focus more on an elite uh, kind of appeal to that logic and re- reason aspect. And so related to that, emotions is another. Yeah.
1: It's weird that we got to call <laughs> thinkers
0: elite. I know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Wait a minute. Like, I mean, you could have a hobby as a plumber and like
3: be totally down with existentialism, right?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's not career based, right? Um, yeah.
3: I think, I think Mumford's take on the elite thing was, is not to say that elites in the, in the you know, how we think politically of like the, the political or yeah. social elites, but more like expertise, right? So exactly. appealing to experts, yeah.
1: Right,
0: right. Yeah, because,
1: and let me interject this, because there's this idea, because we're like, what are leaders thinking? We can't, and this is a challenge for all the social science, we can't really read people's brains. And matter of fact, we have data that shows that brains like trick themselves to where like we change the narrative if it's going to injure our ego or something, right? Mm-hmm. And so, well, let's keep going down this model. How does this model benefit for us from an assessment perspective despite those shenanigans that go on in the human brain?
3: So so I think that that's a really important question. It's kind of fundamental to the reason why we wrote this paper is that we don't have a lot of great tools, or at least I don't think that we think, and the big royal we uh, think that we are, uh, could be good at understanding how leaders think or make sense of problems. So we just get rid of that. We don't even consider it in the process. But the reality is that uh, all of your leaders or potential leaders are showing you how they think all the time, right? The statements we make, how we have conversations, how we frame discussions of uh, issues, whether they're big, small important, not important, you know, trivial. Um, we're, we're providing signals because the argument that CIP makes and that I firmly believe in um, is that, the, you know, these are kind of core rooted, almost trait like perspectives. They're mental models. So they're going to interject themselves into every aspect of your life. And so we can see that. So when you're you know trying to select uh, potential leaders, you could do something like a situational judgment test in an organizational setting, right. And actually develop schemas, to interpret not just what the outcome was for that person, right? Did this potential leader do the right thing or make the right decision, but how did this person arrive at that conclusion, right? And what does that tell me about how they're likely to make sense of problems in the future and what that predicts later on? I think those those tools can be developed. We just don't really focus that much on this sense-making issue.
0: Yeah. And you know it's so interesting because from a very practical standpoint, it is very important to know what World leaders are thinking, and and I'm thinking particularly of applications in the military. So, you know, our listeners know that both Chris and I are in the military, and uh, Chris is in the Army National Guard. I'm in the Navy Reserve. And you know, one thing that that we talk about in terms of how strategy turns into action, right? If you're going to try to, as a military force, figure out well what is our approach towards this conflict in this part of the world, well, you're taking strategy and you're trying to translate it into real plans. And one thing you have to do is figure out well what what does the what does the the leader of the the country want? And part of that comes through official documentation, right? You have um, national security strategy. You have um, you know the De- defense department has their version, and they all tie together. But then it also comes through w- how they talk about issues, maybe even how they tweet about issues. Like these are things that are senior level people are trying to figure out. Like mm-hmm. wh- what are they thinking so that we can best, uh, implement these, these things that are going on. So I think there's very real practical implications to thinking about the thinking and the thought process of the leaders of an organization. And, uh, you know, in this instance in, um, for countries.
1: Yeah. So before we get back to CIP, just as a lay practitioner's perspective, like, so there's this idea that is that leader really who they say they are, you know, everybody sat in front of some numbskull addressing, you know, a, body of people it's like is that who that guy really is and in yeah. the world of twitter instagram all that stuff is is this a curated image or not so let's say you're joe leader and you're like i'll put i just want to be powerful i'll mm-hmm. put on any i'll be charismatic ideological or pragmatic based on whatever's going to get me to the top Well, In that case that person's environment or situation is influencing what works right Or if you look at like David Hackett Fishers, I think what he Albion Seed, right? These four British folkways in America, the idea of does a person carve their way to the top or does a person that ends up at the top just reflect the environment that allows somebody to be there, right? Like there's a certain point in time and that was a person that got thrust forward that best met that point in time plus random selection, right? So it... That's why you say you throw it out, right? Because neither one of the we'll never know. We can't read those guys' minds, right? And so, and so we have this model to just say by either intentionality or by structural constraint, they're probably going to fall into one of these three buckets, right? Is that cor- a correct way to look at it?
2: <laughs> yeah. I, Kelsey, want <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot to unpack right there with what you just said. <laughs> um. I think the idea that someone's gonna fall into one of these three buckets, yes. And you're hitting on a key point, actually, the idea that um, we're measuring all of this based on what they're saying and not actually what they're thinking at the moment, because it's, to Matt's point earlier, a lot of what we pay attention to with leaders is what we can see, Um, and so what the data, the data that we have available to look at to understand charismatic, ideological, and pragmatic leaders is really what they're saying. So a lot of it is about the expression of their mental models, and and so the question does remain open: how much of that is internal uh, versus how much is it how they want to be perceived? But I think Mumford's model, and Mumford would argue that it is something stable that they they're probably not faking, especially if we look at it over time and we see consistency in their responses. It's it's likely that these are something that they're they're sticking to rather than than um, something they're they're faking or just trying to use to get ahead. So
0: kind of. Lo- uh- a little bit like personality so it's it's kind of fixed but maybe a little malleable in certain situations
3: yeah and, and one of the things that we actually you know talk a little bit about in the in the paper and has been brought up in in recent research for cip and something that we're kind of directly exploring in a paper that we're an empirical paper that we're using to follow this manuscript up is the idea that maybe people have more mixed profiles in cip and or are able to shift based on the needs of that situation because chris to your point you know, we have yeah. the, the situational leadership theory. I think is is yeah, pretty strong in this. Right. It's pretty strong in this area, and I think it's a very it's very uh, intuitive to understand that effectiveness in the leadership process is whether or not your leadership or your approach meets the needs of your followers and meets the needs of the situation, right? And so we think about that from an emergence standpoint. Why do people, you know, emerge from a population to become a leader in that moment? I make a, an argument that I think mean, like a lot of leadership people think this. Um, is that it's it's a lot about situational need, right? You're gonna f- move yourself into positions of influence because you have skills or knowledge or perspective that people or situations need or want at that moment. Um, so when we see people emerge on the CIP side, I think a lot of that is is in that area, right? As you know, does your sense-making approach meet the needs of the circumstances? The question that is really interesting on this global scale, and one of the things we talk about in COVID is you know a lot of these people in these positions of influence they didn't emerge because of sense making because most people don't think about sense making or how leaders make sense of problems that's the big issue that we're trying to kind of throw out there so okay if you have these folks who got into positions of leadership and influence for other reasons aside from how they view the world and make sense of problems what happens when something occurs like covid where their sense making process is now essential to success right and we can see where Sense making styles are good and effective and what the outcomes are for there. And then when they are catastrophic failures and are just not good for the, you know, the needs of that circumstance, and we can, we draw the lines between them. And so that's, that's exactly what we're trying to highlight. And that's why sense is so important.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there, we bet and I deal with this all the time and it, lots of times, and we get into an organization that's not super mature. Um, and some of the, they have like people based success rather than process Based success. And then I also think about corporate communications people. So let's say you were Joe.net developer that invented some awesome piece of software. You'd rather be in your dungeon or your parents' basement <laughs> writing code. You know, I miss living with my parents. I was like, you know, anyway. <laughs> so if that and now you're thrust into this spotlight, you know, you'll have these corporate comms people who'll say, like, hey, listen, right now, you know, I get it. We were very pragmatic, but you need to set a vision. And like, mm-hmm. let's re- record five videos until you can stir some spark in the people. But to your point, that, that would be hard for that person to persist over time if he lost. So if you're a leader and you have one of these styles, you can triage with a team of people and a process for s- professional sense making and decision making. Yeah. Or if you're thrust out there, say you're an autocrat and it's just you alone and you have to slaughter your <laughs> opposition type thing. Well, you're going to just be left with CIP. with what you got
3: yeah i I think that's i think that's that's right i mean i don't don't think it's been investigated what you know how people can adjust with preparation right or what you know at what threshold of pressure or stress they would return or you know go back to their kind of core strategy um but but i do think that when people are in naturalistic circumstances when they're not coached when they're not taking little bites and trying to uh, you know specifically do something on purpose they just have these tendencies and it's innate because it's just the way you see the world is fundamentally in a particular direction. It's how you frame issues and that's going to inform everything that you do and everything that you say.
2: Yeah. And I imagine to that point, if, if you try to fake it too long, that's going to be exhausting. So we can think about like emotional labor, you know, when we have to fake our emotions. We have to fake anything. It's cognitively draining, emotionally draining. And so I think for a leader who's pragmatic naturally, um, to really try to be charismatic, they might be able to fake it for a little bit, you know, for one communication, one speech. But for them to try and do that over a long period of time it's probably going to be uh, difficult and exhausting.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah. The CEOs that do that have a coterie of people that don't let the real
3: them yeah. show very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that that also gets at an issue of authenticity, right? Which is which is totally unexplored here as well. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity on the CIP side you know, obviously Kelsey and I are advocates for this theoretical perspective, but there's a lot of opportunity for, for real, I think, extension of our understanding of leadership and social dynamics if we just take this if we accept the idea that sense making is an important that thing is. and we can't know much about leadership without accounting for that issue
0: yeah yeah so before I really want us to talk about these three different leaders that you profiled um in your paper, but right before we do that, we've talked about sense making a couple times. Um, could one of you give us just a, a little quick overview what what the heck are we talking about when we talk about sense making?
3: Uh so sense making is a process uh, through which people uh, interpret a changing environment and uh, give that interpretation to someone else. Um, so this is uh, a foundational kind of organizational uh, theory and phenomenon um, that's been pioneered by um, I think is I believe the pronunciation is uh, Wike, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm not hundred yeah. percent sure on that. Yeah. Um, but but that's that concept uh, is that you know there are two kind of interrelated processes where you know a person or an organization will come in and see changes in the environment or something that needs to be reframed um, and kind of challenge the status quo, what's called sense breaking, right? So um, challenge people's assumptions, provide a new perspective on, you know, how to interpret a problem, and then frame that interpretation and deliver it to potential followers or someone out in the environment, and that's called sense-giving. And so those two combined processes make up this sense-making issue. But at a high level, it's really about, you know, how do I view an issue, translate that issue into terms that I think other people can understand and that meet my expectations for what I want, and then put that translation out into the world for people to take action on.
2: Right. And when we're talking about it from a leader perspective, but when a leader sense makes and then sense gives the followers then sense make themselves too so it's not just a leader telling all all the time but it's the followers and reacting as well so it's a it's a bi-directional process too
0: sure sure and you know i think um a big piece of this can also be the interaction that occurs among leaders and their followers and their peers uh, because um you know, how we understand the world around us and how we make sense of ambiguity and uncertainty is oftentimes a uh, a social and communicative process. And uh, we don't do this necessarily just on our, own, on our own. You know, you think about if you face a challenging situation, one way that you oftentimes make sense of it is by talking it out with someone else, right? And, you know, one thing that Carl Weick um, is oftentimes quoted as saying is, you know, he says, how can I know what I think until I see what I say? <laughs> you know, talking about this 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 way of um, verbalizing what we what we're thinking and getting reactions to it as as a fundamental part of leadership and organizing itself. So um, fascinating stuff. We'll put a link in the show notes to Carl Weick and Kathleen Sutcliffe's book uh, Managing the Unexpected. It's a it's a great read for everybody out there. So let's why don't we move now to this uh, you know these three different leaders. And by the way. Leader of the United States is not one of them. You uh, chose some other <laughs> world did. leaders to look at, and in, in terms of their perspective and their approach towards COVID. So uh, maybe we just tell us who you who you profiled, why you profiled them, and we'll kind of pick these apart a little bit.
3: Uh, so we we did uh, not speak about President Trump um, for for a number of reasons, but mostly because we we really wanted people to address the paper for its ideas um, Mm -hmm. and not think about it as some type of political Mm -hmm. statement. Um, And also because we don't need to just look at the United States to to see these things. This is a global problem, we've got global leaders. So um, we look to profile one charismatic, one ideological, and one pragmatic leader um, from this, you know, kind of case study approach. And uh, our charismatic leader of choice was Justin Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada. Uh, Their ideological leader is Jair Bolsonaro, who is currently the president of Brazil, uh, and our pragmatic leader uh, was uh, quoted in the newspaper, Germany's great pragmatist, uh, Angela Merkel, uh, the chancellor of Germany. Um, and so what we did in the paper is we went back and looked at uh, speeches um, that, pe- that these folks gave on their campaigns or earlier in their political careers to kind of demonstrate through quotes the foundations of why they embody these particular styles. Um, and then... Uh, looked at also statements they made and actions that they took over the course of COVID in the first three months or so, really kind of starting in in March of 2020 and moving into June of 2020 um, to try to show the connections between the styles and strategies they used when they were in non-COVID circumstances or emerging to power when they're on the campaign trail or trying to you know establish a political foothold, um, and then you know seeing how those things are mirrored in how they treat a global pandemic. Um, and so the the paper kind of, you know, gives a description of C, I, and P from a research and foundation standpoint, and then shows through these case analyses kind of, and their own words, which I think is a really interesting uh, aspect of the paper, shows through their own words, how these people and their statements and their actions kind of embody each and every uh, aspect of these, um, of these styles.
0: Awesome. So should we maybe talk about Trudeau first as our charismatic uh, example, and you know what is it about him that makes him charismatic? What you know, and and um, how does that play out here with regard to COVID?
2: I think one of the big things with Trudeau is his—he's really positive and he's really future oriented. So you can see it from his early campaign days. Um, on the trail, where he's really talking about this vision for a great future, and when he's talking about COVID, he's talking about how we're going to get to a a better place, and we're going to overcome this, and we're going to be great, and um, and it's just a really positive message and a really really clear vision for for a positive future from him.
3: The other thing that that Trudeau does, and that's that's kind of uh, characteristic of of charismatic leaders, is. His, because he's so future oriented and appealing to these broad swaths of people, it means that his objectives are, they don't always stay focused. So, from COVID, for example, one of the big speeches he gave was on Earth Day. And uh, he has this very progressive, environmentalist focused vision for Canada. Um, And even on Earth Day, you know, on Earth Day in Canada during this massive pandemic, he made sure that his speech was not just about COVID, but that it was tied into the broader environmental goals that Canada has. Um, So he tried to interweave these things together. And one of the critiques of charismatic leaders is that because they can't stay super focused on objectives, if you need someone who's very specialized and very focused on on a singular outcome, uh, they don't really get there. And we actually saw that potentially manifesting in Canada, where people were very dissatisfied with his, you know, clarity around what Canada was doing to handle the pandemic, you know, what his objectives were, there wasn't enough transparency around the processes. Um, and he was widely criticized in the in Canadian press for uh, kind of trying to keep his hands in too many spaces at the same time and not focusing on the issue at hand.
1: Which is interesting. As a consultant, I'm thinking about the professional literature based ways of doing. OK, I speak once, right? I get this feedback from focus groups. I have some way of sensing what people are saying. That needs to inform my process for next time so I'm not getting stoned for not staying on message or on track. Right. But that's what's so interesting about the CIP model is like, gosh, you could tell the numbskills to get with it. But these <laughs> these methods and right, that's that. They know how to play a spade every single time, right? Or if they're every, if they're a hammer, everything's a nail.
3: Exactly. It's it's just so foundational to how you see the world. It's very difficult to shift your perspective. I mean, just imagine being told by a group of people that the way that you view the world around you is the wrong way to view it. That's a really challenging. <laughs> That's a challenging thing to try to address. it's very rude, also.
1: <laughs> but this is also why most of the Fortune 500 don't persist. You know, they're helmed by leaders that have a paradigm that doesn't adapt to sense making data. I mean, it would almost be like not that we want our robot overlords to take over yet, (laughs) but you know, there's almost some of that piece. Yet what's interesting to me that you guys were talking about is all the people were reacting to what the leaders were doing, right? Because they play a part in this. And I don't know how followers would would react to a leader that. Chameleoned his way through or her way through, right? I don't know.
3: Yeah, it's it's really, I mean, so you know, we know leadership is a reciprocal process, right? It's not unidirectional, it's not just leaders giving their leadership to someone else. Um, leadership exists purely because there's a dynamic between leaders, followers, and the environment. And I'm I'm firmly in the camp of uh, followers are generally more important than leaders um, yeah. because if their interpretation of the world, their interpretation of leadership in the moment is exactly what grants a person mm-hmm. authority to lead. And if you don't have that authority, then you know you don't get positive outcomes from from your followers, and then you don't have leadership. So, um, you know, I take that kind of flip perspective on leadership, and you're you're right. So it's you know trying to think about you know the followers' reactions to this. In, in the times of COVID, we've been able to see it because there are object there are objective outcomes on the ground that can say you know whether or not people are doing what is advised or uh, taking the recommendations of their leaders or protesting against them or you know making public comments to say that they disagree or that they're dissatisfied. Um, it it gives us kind of that insight which you usually don't get in a you know a corporate or organizational setting, but in a political mm-hmm. setting you can.
0: Awesome. So that's uh, that's Trudeau and the charismatic approach. Uh, Let's turn our attention now to your ideological leader whom you profiled in the paper.
2: This was a really interesting one to write (laughs) (laughs) and a really interesting one to explore, because if you know anything about him, um, he's a character. Is that the best way to say
0: remind folks who we're talking about?
2: Oh, we're talking about here Bolsonaro in Brazil. So he really characterized an ideological leader because he's super negative. So at one point, very early on, he was quoted as saying, I'm sorry, some people will die. They'll die. That's life. Um, So you know, not the most upbeat <laughs> message.
1: <laughs> I don't want to be on um, his boat if I get off the uh, Titanic or something. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, definitely not. He might push you. I don't know. <laughs> um, um, and he was really past focused too. So he, he's always talking about getting back to normal. We got to get back to the way things were um, rather than saying, let's create this great future where we overcome COVID. It was, let's just go back to what we were doing before. Um, and so, I mean, he had some really great classic quotes that really well represented that ideological approach.
1: Yeah. So, but they're not always negative, right? This isn't just stick our head in the sand and pretend. I think in a time of change, right? Sometimes the tendency can be to throw out the good with the bad, right? You know, maybe we don't want to come so unmoored from our roots when we're exploring a emergent area of practice, right? There's some risks there that I mean I think the ideological approach can have some sanity to it, not just maybe the insanity of what we see in Brazil, right?
3: Absolutely. Well, for sure. And you know, one of the one of the things about CIP that I think is really important to clarify, and I'm glad you brought this up, is that the theory and the model itself doesn't say that one style or one approach to sense making is better than the other. In fact, it's every single approach can be. Uh, useful for having effective and outstanding leadership. It's a, simply a question of does that sense-making approach meet the needs of the people that are being led and the situation at hand. And as situations change, maybe you need an ideological leader at some times and a charismatic leader at others. The question is open as to whether or not people can identify that and shift, um, or whether or not you know you you have kind of some type of uh, issue when you when you have that mismatch. And that's what we're that's what we're looking at. But to your to your bigger point about, you know, is ideological leadership good? Sometimes the answer is unequivocally. Yes. I mean, it's, it's certainly useful. And there's also, you know, a a personalized versus socialized dynamic, um, that could be addressed too, which is that some people, whether charismatic, ideological, or pragmatic are going to frame their objectives as collectivistic, right. And for the good of the group. And, you know, that's their frame of mind is that they're trying to do things for others or do things for the organization, and that would be you know, that socialized aspect. And then you can take a more personalized aspect, again, from all of those points of view, which is, I'm going to use my leadership to do things that are good for me um, and advantage myself or advantage a small group. Um, and so the, it, it is this kind of nuanced perspective um, that that needs to be accounted for but the negativity aspect the past focused aspect from an ideological sense making standpoint is pretty pretty standard they try because making sense of a problem to try to move backwards or return to glory right his campaign slogan was you know make brazil great again let's be proud of our homeland again um that that perspective has to imply that something is bad now right. and that we need to return to something that was good
0: hmm. gotcha
3: okay. yeah so he's so higherball Sonoro has um, like Kelsey said, he's infinitely quotable um in the co in the COVID yeah, times. In a
1: bad way. Yeah, he's infinitely
3: quotable <laughs> in the COVID times. It's really it's incredible. Um, but one of the other things I think is is interesting, um, and that we've seen with Hireball Bolsonaro and that we've seen with other potentially ideological uh leaders across the world, um, is a real lack of um appeals to evidence. Um so, Unlike pragmatic leaders, who I'm sure we'll talk about next, ideological leaders focus on appealing to values and fostering those values around, you know, to to build this core, very tightly knit group of followers who really won't leave them no matter what, unless they violate those values, because everything is based on these kind of intrinsic things. Um, But that means that they are more likely, and the research has shown that ideological leaders are more likely to deny evidence um, or to, uh, you know, use really negative, potentially violent rhetoric to try to get people to their side or to discredit others. Um, So in the case of something that needs a lot of evidence, right, like a medical public health emergency, (laughs) ideological leaders are kind of set up to, you know, set up to not be as successful potentially because it's just not in their nature to look at other people and say they're right over there.
0: You know, one thing I'm wondering is, could you also characterize someone who is ultra progressive as ideological?
2: Yes, definitely.
0: Definitely.
3: Absolutely.
2: It's not isolated to one ideology.
0: Yeah. I mean, because we have, there are various people right now in various countries around the world, including ours, who suggest that certain aspects of our society need to be torn down to their roots and rebuilt, Mm -hmm. right? And that's another ideological approach um implying that there's something bad with how it is now not necessarily saying return to how things were um but i think there's there's some other shades of of this that i think come into play and they're still ideological in nature to some extent
1: all right so let, let's let talk about so there's a problem with the cip model that we haven't discussed but i think that now that we're going to go to the only female leader that you analyzed here <laughs> so kelsey yeah let, did they did they survey a bunch of female leaders when they developed the CIP model? Oh,
2: what a great question. <laughs> no, <laughs> the um, the model is entirely almost entirely based on a bunch of um, men, typically white men. Um, and so it was great to be able to talk about Merkel here um, and how she aligned with this model. Um so that was very cool. And to to think about, we thought about a lot of women while we were looking at this model because they were working on this paper because, you know, they're really at the forefront, of a lot of discussions around COVID leadership. So there were a lot of really good options to choose from. Uh, but we went with Merkel here because she is historically known just to be a, a hardcore pragmatist.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about that. What what makes her a pragmatist and what is it about her approach toward COVID that, that uh, we should highlight
2: so in contrast to the other two we've talked about who used a lot of emotional appeals positive and negative Merkel isn't super emotional if you've ever watched her uh give a speech she's she's pretty straightforward
0: understatement <laughs> of the year <laughs> <laughs> Angela Merkel not overly emotional <laughs> uh
2: yeah definitely not um, one of her characteristics Um, So she's really rational. And if you look at her, her press conferences, she's giving, she's showing data, she's showing the evidence, she's showing graphs, you know, and talking about the, the different patterns and what, what Germany needed to do to be successful. Uh, So that was really in stark contrast to the other two, Um, which I think is also really interesting because women sometimes get a rap for being too emotional. And here's a really great example of one who's Mm. really not Mm -hmm. relying on emotion at all. Um, She's also really yeah. present focused. So while the others were focused on building a future um, or returning to the way things were, she is saying, like, we have a problem to solve right now. And that is where that's where we're yeah. going to place our focus.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: And she's willing to forego other goals. Right. To mm-hmm. to do that. So some a lot of her quotes are about, you know, very measured. um. No hyperbole, right assessing the problem as it is, and saying, "Hey, you know things are might get worse we're doing pretty good right now, but they might get worse, so stay the course. Uh, you know we're not going to focus on new things or change our objective. Um, when things were getting better in Germany, but the economy was suffering, she was willing to let the economy still sit because she had felt that the pragmatic problem of the virus was unlikely to go away, and that 's partly because of that appeal to yeah. expertise. She was willing to look outside i mean Angela Merkel is a PhD trained chemist and biophysicist. She's a, she's a smart woman with a lot of scientific knowledge, and she goes to the, to the expertise around her and builds coalitions of people that can give her good advice and appeals to that advice rather than to the emotional tone in the country. Even when there were protests for lockdowns and you know really kind of negative uh, atmosphere among the public in Germany, stuck to her guns, um, understood the problem for what it was, and was willing to take criticism in order to stay the course on a on a singular objective.
1: Yeah. So people who think that the U.S. is the only p- place having mask riots, and you can't tell me what to do. Yeah. That that's just not the case, right? They're experiencing the same kind of stuff over in Germany.
3: Every all over all over Europe, in South America, everywhere. I mean, you know, it's a natural reaction for people to be dissatisfied by being told to quarantine for months on end. Um, the, the question is, you know, what are, how have leaders responded to it? Some leaders worldwide have acquiesced to those demands. Some have tried to, you know, build coalitions or, or appeal to those masses. And maybe that's because of a more charismatic or ideological sense-making style. But pragmatists like Angela Merkel, um, and we've seen with some other potentially pragmatic leaders um, uh, who a lot of them tend to actually <laughs> be women um, across the world, which is really fascinating, um, you know, stick to their, stick to their evidence and and try to. Uh, take emotionality out of it and use the, uh, the the data and expertise around them to address singular problems in progress, because they know that they'll add up to a bigger solution. Um, and it's it, you know in the face of mass unrest in your country. That's yeah. Be and difficult. to be
2: fair to the others, since we kind of talked a little bit about critiques of that approach, that's a big critique um, that Merkel has received across her tenure, is that she isn't really emotional and doesn't provide that warm feeling, which you know, it can sometimes be important and whether or not she's being criticized for that because she's a woman and we might expect that more of her or because people really are looking for that. I don't know. Um, but it's certainly a critique of pragmatic leaders that they don't really appeal to that emotion. And sometimes we, we need and want that.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I guess with the four of us who are here on this podcast, we got, you know, three IO psychologists and a, a recovering accountant. <laughs> yeah, no, not an accountant. No, Chris, Chris has a background in accounting. So, I mean, for us, spreadsheets and data are pretty exciting. But for a lot of people, I think, uh, so I've heard, uh, you know, spreadsheets and rationality don't always just kind of blow people's hair back.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, you know, you can you can like data and you can like logic and you can like, you know, evidence in in big quotation marks. But again, how you frame and send that information out to the world, how you choose to do that, that's that sense giving element of sense making that's so important. Um, And, you know, I'm sure Justin Trudeau gets a lot of data put in front of him. I'm sure as the prime minister of Canada, he's got a lot of information, whether or not he chooses to use that information to frame a problem. That's the really big question and whether or not that's necessary. For COVID, it looks like it's probably necessary, at least in the early part of the of the pandemic where we were specifically looking at this, um, it looks like pragmatism was the strategy that was most likely to be effective for public health outcomes for those countries. And we're working on an empirical paper to kind of we demonstrated that qualitatively, but we're looking we're looking for empirical evidence at this point to kind of confirm that hypothesis. Um, but that might change. Um, and then you know maybe a you know, uh, pragmatic leaders, for example, might be really good at getting people to uh, acknowledge the fact that they need to wear masks and keep the virus caseload down. But then when the uh, virus seems to have abated, are pragmatic leaders good at building the coalitions that are going to support them when they continue to advocate and say that, hey, wearing the mask is good for our future, right? Or we need to do this to, you know, to, to keep us all safe and healthy moving forward. Pragmatists might not be good there. Charismatic leaders, charismatic sense making might be the right fit. Well, we'll have to see.
2: Yeah, which is kind of the phase we're entering right now. You know, people are tired of wearing their mask if they're wearing it. And they're tired of sitting in their house and they want to go out to eat, you know, inside a restaurant with, next to a lot of friends with people around them. Um, and so it, it might be, as Matt said, that another approach will be more effective as we move through the pandemic and the needs really change.
1: Right. So let's go to some practical implications for here. And to kick that off, let us I really want to do a juxtaposition of trait-based leadership and this model. So Kelsey, because trait stuff, right, just is like everywhere. And when people think about leadership classically, it's all trait-based. So what is trait-based? Well, trait-based
2: leadership, based leadership is this idea that it's, it's, it's the nature versus nurture debate. So it's this idea that you're kind of born a leader and you have these certain traits that will that will make you great. If we go back to really early research on this, you have things like your height. <laughs> um, you've got um, you know gender being an important one there, still kind of important. Um, and we can think about personality traits, so extroversion, and and we know that the trait theory, you know, predicts things. We know that certain traits may make you more likely to emerge as a leader and things like that, but it, it does miss the mark in that that's only what people might perceive to be a leader and rather not what's going to make someone effective as a leader.
1: All right. So now let's, let's move into the, the, you know, the CIPs about their problem solving styles, right? Right. Like one, it's like the Ken doll Barbie version, like, oh, look, they look perfect. (laughs) That's a perfect leader there. <laughs> Gosh, I, man, they they look good on the website. Yeah. <laughs> but but the CIP is like when the rubber meets the road, what are these jackwagons yeah, exactly, actually exactly.
2: doing? Exactly, right? Not even just what they're doing, but what are they thinking about that then influences what they do and what they say? Which I think is really the strength of the CIP is it's not just about what we can see. It's really about what's going on inside their heads.
0: So how do we figure out what someone's... Um... Decision making or problem solving or cognitive style is their sense making approach prior to getting them into a position where they might need to use that and so forth. I mean, you mentioned, I think, Matt, early on in the episode, you know, maybe you could create some sort of situational judgment tests for it or or something like Mm -hmm. that. Um, What are your thoughts there in terms of, you know, are there any implications that we can say now at least or thoughts around selection?
3: So I think I think it's an open question because I don't think that this has been really well applied, right? It, particularly in you know consulting and thinking about leader development and stuff like that we we simply don't think about cognition as much. But that's a huge opportunity, right? It's it, you know, if we can make this something that people are thinking about, it's great. I think situational judgment tests seem at first blush to be the most natural extension. So, you know, if we can design uh, you know, tests that put leaders or potential leaders into situations that are similar to what they would face um, in their regular duties, but then don't focus on those process outcomes and try to develop some perspective on um, how to interpret their what they say or how they approach a problem to to figure out what it is that they're thinking about, um, and then try to extrapolate that out. Which I think that the you know trying to uh, come up with this this model off the top of my head, I think that the uh, the interpretation of those approaches and that sense-making is actually the hardest part. So, you know, trying to determine what type of process that people are going through to get make sense of a problem, we could do that, right? You could have people write it out, you know, journal out how they got to a thought process, right, and interpret that, develop some type of uh, schema. But how we translate, you know, did you take a, a more charismatic or pragmatic or ideological approach to, okay, what does that mean about, how you're likely to behave in the future—that's something that's going to need, I think, trial and error. Um, and so maybe starting with, uh, you know, g- core IO psychology, job analysis, right? Going to the jobs and and you know doing a job analysis and trying to see what successful, you know, what success looks like from a sense-making perspective on the job, um, and trying to develop some type of uh, point of view around that and use that to inform testing in the future. That's probably the place to start.
0: Yeah. You know, one thing I think about, too, when it comes to selection of executives and top leaders in organizations, top management teams, is that, you know, a traditional job analysis would look at, you know, what do they do uh, you know, what does work performance look like for them uh, on a day to day basis? And yet I, I feel like for those more externally facing roles and those ones that have more far reaching um, implications, it, it's also important to take into context, you know, things like what is the, the broader situation that that organization is in? Uh, what are the, you know, the, the different factors outside of the organization that may present problems that they have to solve? And I think that that's another way to kind of start thinking about it in a more in a broader sense, and also thinking about you know where is the organization in its life cycle? You know, is this an organization that is brand new and really needs to have you know some more of a charismatic approach, or maybe there's a turnaround situation, um, or maybe it is an organization that needs to hey we need to be focused on efficiency and and everything. Uh, I don't know. I just think that those are some things to be thinking about here. So um, I like where you're going with that.
3: Yeah, I think those are really interesting questions, and I think you you can also get. You know, that brings us back to kind of, it's interesting because all this stuff relates to kind of core established leadership theory and research, right? So, you know, why do charismatic leaders, and that's charismatic not from CIP, but charismatic, you know, the you know, neo-charismatic leaders, why do they emerge? Well, they typically emerge because there's a crisis or something needs to be changed, right? Charismatic leaders are really good at motivating fast, rapid, you know, status quo, breaking Uh, Changes and in organizational circumstances, or like in a corporate circumstance, if you've got a big project or you have some type of paradigm shift in your uh, industry, you charismatic leaders probably fit that sense making style for there. But then, to your point, Ben, you know, as the organization uh, continues to grow, as the life cycle changes, those needs are probably going to shift as well. And so, who is the right person to lead at that time? What set, what view of the world do we need? Is a really important question that we don't think about.
1: Yeah, yeah, and this is this is competitive landscape as well. So if you're in a place where it's competitive, you can actually use some of this stuff to trip trip the jackwagon you're trying to trample in the marketplace, right? Yeah. Like, I yeah. mean, th- this is not just like, oh, well, let's just select the best leader. Get, I mean, it's still a bloody <laughs> mess out there in capitalism, right? And you can use this stuff. But we use it so like it's the same kind of stuff we do it with countries. Like how many times can you hack my infrastructure before I put a missile through your front door? (laughs) Right. Is the missile the best way to go or can we talk them through it? Or, you know, like, what is this stuff? Is this bluffing? You know, and like this is a conversation that happens between intelligence communities, militaries, um, policymaking devices think tanks, other people with nefarious goals, you know, to make money off of conflict or whatever. All that stuff that happens in the conversation between nations happens between companies because you have these same type of leaders doing because they have to sense, right? They can't just go on autopilot or I think even all three styles know they'll go off a cliff if they make the wrong moves to some degree. You just can't keep playing that. But the intrinsic personality or something Straight jacket sim lots of times is mm-hmm. what it seems to say from the Jada. So go into that. If I'm wired this way, you know, the Lady Gaga, you know, baby, I was born this way, you know, <laughs> if I've got this style, right. Should I worry about that?
3: I don't think you should worry about it. I think it's, it's something to, to know about yourself. Right. And so I think, you know, introspection is helpful here too. Just being aware that we have this kind of trait like uh, approach to interpreting the world and what that means for how we, uh, you know, do things and say things and who we associate with and the decisions we make um, that's that's important but there's like to get back to it, there's no right way to do CIP, right There's no correct uh, approach to have there's no core sense making style that's better than something else. so uh, there's nothing to be worried about it, I think from a personal development if we were doing a leadership development program, I think the first step would be trying to understand what your approach to developing a mental model and making sense, why that's associated with how you make decisions, right? And if you understand, you know, the, the core there, you can understand the gaps and see where you can fill them in or where you need training or development or advice from someone else.
2: And to comment on this trait idea and the baby you're born this way, you know, it's important to note that, you know, you're not born a charismatic sensemaker or an ideological sensemaker, there's research showing that it's a lot about our experiences throughout our early development and um, early adult, adult development that, um, that really shape our sensemaking approach. So it is about the experiences that we have and interactions we have with others that lead us to these certain styles. So, so they are stable, but it's not like we're born and they're totally um, ingrained from day one. We do learn them in some way.
1: Yeah, something Ben and I talk about all the time, and we haven't brought this up, is this idea of a moral compass, right? So no matter what, you know, you got to tie yourself, especially when you're in emergent places. This is where the sense making, when you're in chaos, you've got to triage something. And, and sometimes, like, if you're in chaos, yet there's no right play that's even invented yet. Mm-hmm. So the, behaving immediately is something you could do. Fine. Default to your charismatic, ideological, pragmatic view. But there's a way so like we can have a ideological values about freedom and individual rights, but we can talk about how everybody wearing a mask preserves more people to be alive to exert their individual rights. You see you see what I did there. Right. You know, so if you have a moral compass such as preservation of life or I think about the medical, you know, they say, first, do no harm. Mm -hmm. Right. These, These are moral compass that can guide how you use these sense making styles. Um, and, and I, and I think that's just so important and we don't see a whole lot of moral education out in the corporate landscape, right? You know, like if you're uh, Zuckerberg and how are you going to guide Facebook? Well, there's not a playbook for that. Now, if you're starting a new McDonald's or Burger King, you know, Joe's burger franchise or whatever, you know, like there's some playbook for how to operate in that space. You're not breaking like, yeah. you know, unless you want to deal with the slaughtering of animals, it's not like you're mowing new moral grass, right? But if you're Zuckerberg, who's testifying in front of the Senate about how you're going to sell stuff to people based on their data or whatever, you know, those styles are kind of separate from morality, wouldn't you say?
2: I think a lot of that goes back to what Matt was talking about earlier about the personalized versus socialized. So is it that your best interest in mind or is it um, the, the broader group goal this collective goal that you're interested in. Um, so I think we would probably see the, the, the socialized leaders here. And to be clear, you can be personalized or socialized with either of these. Um, we would probably see more what you're talking about, these moral outcomes. So these good outcomes that we, we tend to associate with ethics and things like that.
0: Yeah. So is there any, um, any, are there any other practical implications from your work here uh, as it relates to coronavirus and leadership approaches toward it,
3: so I think the big practical takeaway that that we were trying to motivate with this paper um, is, you know, obviously there are things that I think we should be thinking about from a uh, executive education, executive, you know, you at the leader level in organizations, both socially, you know, both social organizations and and business organizations. But for me, I think the the biggest practical takeaway is actually on the prospective follower level right I'd said before I'm focused on the follower I think followers are the most important
2: he loves the followers I
3: love followers <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so I think that you know the big practical takeaway is for people who are evaluating who they think should lead them um, to to try to do these assessments right to understand that this way of viewing the world, the way that we form mental models, the way that we communicate our ideas is giving you real information about how people will address problems, right? What types of strategies will they use? What types of resources will they gain? What type of perspective will they have when something happens? Big, small, indifferent, doesn't matter. That information is there, but we're just ignoring it. So when, you know, if followers are are there to try to uh, make people emerge as leaders, and you know, in a political circumstance, because obviously we were talking about this from the case of world leaders. A lot of world leaders are elected, so you have a direct, you know, you're doing a direct thing to to make a choice about who comes into a position of influence. Um, I think the practical takeaway is, you know, try to pay attention to these things, right? Understand that the the information being put in front of you when people are talking or when you know in public statements or in their actions is giving you more information than just the you know whether the decision or the outcome was a good one or a bad one. There's more there, um, and if we become skilled at interpreting that, that's better for everybody.
0: Yeah. Have you ever seen the YouTube video "Leadership Lessons from Dancing Guy"? No.
3: Yeah, I have seen
0: that. Yeah.
2: I'm yeah, definitely gonna that. Google this after.
0: <laughs> show All note. Right. Well, yeah. So. The show so, note. <laughs> uh, no, you know, we'll, we'll, so we'll we'll put it in the show notes, but it's this great video, and it was done by this guy named Derek Sivers, and Derek is a really interesting entrepreneur guy, and he did this talk. Um, I actually think he did it at TED um where he shows this video of people at a music festival and it's this one guy who's just out there dancing and then um one by one some other people start following him and then it turns into this big huge dance party right and the idea and what he says in that he says you know it's it's that first follower that turns mm. that lone nut into a leader yeah and so to your point about you know followers have so much power in create in actually deciding who the leader is going to be just by Virtue of them following them. So, you know, to um, using some of what we talked about here in this episode, followers should be thinking about, well, I'm going to try to follow the person who has a decision-making or a cognitive style that yeah. seems appropriate for what we're going through. Yeah, right?
3: Yeah, I think so. I think just being, you know, being aware that those things are important um, and that the, the information is right in front of you for you to interpret. I think developing skills in consuming that um, is is a really big, broad, practical takeaway um, that's applicable across a lot of a lot of different areas.
0: Yeah, but that is a lot to ask. Yes, it is. Yes, yeah, it
3: is.
2: I was just going to say to Ben's point, it's going to be equally as hard for followers to change their preference as it will for a leader to change their style. Right, so people are going to be attracted to a certain type of style because it's going to resonate with them. So, they might have a more ideological sense-making perspective. So, they're going to be attracted to that ideological leader more naturally. And so, thinking about just thinking about what how how is that leader leading? How are they thinking and making sense of the problem? Does it align with me? Is one question, but then they also have to ask, is that what I want and is that what is necessary for the situation? And that's a really hard Question for someone to to answer, I think, and to disentangle from: Is it what I want versus is that what this situation needs? And so, I think that's going to be a huge challenge too. To to Matt's point about educating the world on understanding leader sense making um, is also understanding what's important versus what I prefer.
0: Yeah, yeah, but but when it comes to world leadership and and leadership in your your city, your your county, your state, your country, Um, you know, part of this goes back to being an informed citizen. Yeah. So in our last episode with Mike Dovilla, who has served in basically every role there is in the government uh, in terms of different types of jobs you can have, being an elected official, being a staffer, being uh, an appointee and so forth, you know, um, having it people be informed about how to be a good citizen is very important. And so, you know, part of this education that I think needs to happen is, you know, we should be thinking about how people make decisions because that's very important. So um, love this, this area of research. I think this is a really cool topic and you did a great job in talking about it within this current context of COVID. Um, What are any other practical implications that you see for, for this research or any other thoughts about this? So
3: I think my my big practical takeaway, um, and if there's you know kind of a leaving statement is I think our motivation for this paper and for continuing with this this work is to try to take the point of view of academics and of people out in the working public and people who are looking at leaders, which is everybody all the time, um, and change the conversation that you're having with yourself and you're having in your organizations from a from one of what is a leader and what does a leader look like? Um, and what are the outcomes of leadership to what makes leadership? right? How do leaders think? Um, I think if we can we can focus more on the why question of leadership, right? Why are leaders the way that they are? Why do they focus on the you know the things that they do? Why do they frame problems the way that they do? instead of the what or the how, um, we get a much more complete picture of the issue. Um, and so that's you know big thematic takeaway, but that's kind of the big motivation for for me in this in this line of work.
2: Yeah, and I wholeheartedly agree with, with Matt on that. I think as another takeaway here is that in the paper, we, we lean toward emphasizing the really great role that pragmatic leaders are doing uh, during the initial stages of the crisis, and we see that, our, our data support that, and what we're looking at now, um, but I think it's important to remember that all of these styles have their strengths, and all of them have their weaknesses. And it's important to consider what the needs of the situation are and who's going to be be right in that time. Um, and so it's not that one, one style is super awesome and always better than the rest, but we need to understand the styles in a nuanced way to understand what we might need in a, in a situation.
0: Excellent. So today on the Indigo Podcast, we talked about... These different approaches, these different styles of dealing with COVID in terms of uh, leading countries and related implications. We talked about those three different ways to think about leadership. We profiled three different leaders during COVID, and we talked about some implications for people and organizations. And I just want to say on behalf of myself, and I'll go ahead and speak for Chris because I know he feels the same. Thank you so much, Kelsey and Matt, for being part of the Indigo podcast.
1: Yeah. So guys, if people want to find you on the web, do you guys have a web presence?
3: Yeah, uh you can follow me. Uh my my website, uh just mattcrane.com. Uh you can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Matt Crane on Twitter, um, and that'll be great. C-R-A-Y-N-E. Yes, C-R-A-Y-N-E. Yes. All right, Kelsey.
2: You can find me at KelseyMedeiros.com. That's gonna be a trickier one to spell than crane.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll put in the show notes. There we go. That's
2: better. <laughs> uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at dr Kelsey. D-R-K-E-L-C. And you can also find some more information about the consulting that I do at ethicsadvantageconsulting.com.
0: Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.